Hello, and welcome to Rightfully So, your podcast for all things first-year writing classroom. Uh, we're back this week with another interesting episode about writing and first-year writing and academic writing and writing, and if I can say writing one more time. Uh, this week, our discussion is going to be focused on the idea of, of intertextuality and, um, and, and discursiveness, um, which is sort of put more simply, we're going to be talking about letting your experiences in the texts that you encounter outside of the writing classroom inform what you're doing inside the writing classroom. Uh, as an instructor, I've noticed that there's a, a bit of a tendency for, for students to, to, to sort of cloister themselves or limit themselves to only discussions and, and texts that happen within the writing classroom. So when faced with something like um, uh, a long research project, students often struggle, right? Because the course material may not necessarily support a long research project. Um, or they find themselves sort of uh, being somewhat literal in their research and their research terms, because again, they're trying to keep it within the context of the writing classroom. And uh, I find that I'm often talking to my students one-on-one -on -one, uh, and encouraging them to to bring that outside experience in, to let other texts sort of come into the writing classroom, to become part of the new context within the writing classroom, and become part of the work that they're doing as a writer. Uh, so I'd like to sort of open this discussion up to my my co-hosts, Carrie and Jeanette, this week, um, and and sort of ask them what sort of uh, feedback would you give your students with regards to this idea of intertextuality, or in other words, letting their other courses inform what they're doing in the classroom. When you were talking, Bill, I was thinking about um, a conversation I just had actually recently with a student where they, um, they're doing a research assignment right now and they, it, they did exactly what, um, what we want them to do in terms of this discussion of intertextuality, where um, they had learned about Maslow's hierarchy of needs uh, in psychology. Uh, and so they saw a connection with that and um, a, their research project in GW, um, which I thought was super cool. Uh, it didn't quite fit, but it was one of those where I was like, let's think about this some more and think about how these ideas could be connected. So it took a little bit more work, which I think is part of it where it's easier to compartmentalize classes and say, okay, so I have math here and I have philosophy here and I have writing here. Um, but the reality is that there are these spaces sometimes, and it's not always, but there, there's moments where something that you heard um, in a lecture in one class suddenly is like, wait, that's similar to what's what I'm reading here or hearing about here. And making those connections, A, is what we would like students to do. And two is super cool. Um, it's like one of those things where you're like, oh my gosh, <laughs> this is all related. Um, so I know as a student, when that happened, it was kind of like, oh, <laughs> so. I will say that I I want to echo the fact that I get excited when students make connections from my class and, and other classes too, because it just lets me know that that 
you know, their brains are receiving the information <laughs> that it's not just that I'm not just going to get them regurgitating things, you know, that they're kind of seeing those connections. And thinking about the fact too, that a lot of them are taking GW, you know, first year, maybe even second year. Um, and that's when they're also taking a lot of other general ed classes. And I want them to embrace the fact that these are all kind of related in a way, you know, because they are this general ed. And so it's, it's the idea that you want to create a foundation that will then inform even the higher up classes. So I tell them, you know, that everything we're doing now does relate to your upper division classes, even though it's not specifically for your major, um, you know, that it all is kind of creating a base really. And so you're going to see this stuff, even what we're talking about in our class, you're going to see this in other, you know, kind of, it might be worded differently, it might be phrased differently or approached differently, but it's going to be there because you're expected to have this foundation before you move on to those, those higher classes. That's a great point. Um, establishing that, that foundation. Um, one of the reasons I want to encourage it is because it, it, it encourages um, or helps you build sort of creative or nonlinear thinking, right? Um, so if you can take Maslow's hierarchy of needs and then apply it to something in another course, um, more power to you, right? Because that is more creative thinking um, and it creates more opportunities for you as a writer, right? Because you're not being quite so so literal in your interpretation of the text, right? Um, and, it, and it can be really helpful. I was using the uh, example of my master's thesis with my students on Tuesday night um, talking about how um, sometimes reading an unrelated text can be the thing you need because the student was sort of lamenting the fact that they're they're finding a lot of of research material, they're finding a lot of different sources, but they're a little bit all over the place, right? They're like, oh, I'm reading about this over here, which seems great, but then there's this other thing, and then I'm kind of down this rabbit hole, and I have to come back and start over. And I'm like, that's not wasted time, right? Um, in my master's thesis, I was reading about Epstein's cognitive schema and how we make decisions and how we accept new information. And then I came across this obscure reference to another text that was a social, cultural, or cultural studies text. And it turned out to be the thing that I needed. And I'm like, oh, this crystallizes my entire argument. And I found it almost by accident, right? So in other words, I was kind of on the right path, but I was sort of parallel to where I wanted to be. And I just found this weird little footnote sort of like aside and I'm like, oh, that was the bridge I needed and it got me where I wanted to go. And I think if I wasn't open to something that didn't fit my initial assumptions, and maybe that's the thing we need to talk to our students about is assumptions, because I found something that didn't fit my initial assumptions, but I was willing to like read it and consider it, it turned out to be a, a godsend. Like I'm like, this is this got me out of that court of like logical corner I'd sort of talked myself into. Uh, and it was fantastic, right? It sort of saved the the paper for me. So, you know, that's, and I think there's, you know, as, as, as Carrie pointed out, because general ed first year, especially at Cal State San Marcos is designed to sort of be cross-pollination. They're doing like general ed living and general ed philosophy. And like the intent is for all these things to sort of inform each other, right? Because it's it's sort of preparing you to be a conscientious, mindful, and, and deliberate student um, and give you those like skills that you need to be successful later um, to sort of come into the writing classroom and say, well, this is a writing classroom, so I'm going to write and I'm going to sort of limit myself to this context um, sort of undermines the entire intent of like the whole course structure, right? I do feel like they get tunnel vision 
Um, and especially not just within a class, but within an assignment. Like I've even noticed that when they're focusing on one essay prompt, it's like they don't see how it connects. You know, they're, they're, they're not looking at it as like this big spider web. They're like looking at just this one little speck and they're like, that's what I'm going to focus on. And even when they're doing research, I'm only going to find sources that fit my thesis, you know, <laughs> and they're not even going to, you know, if they read a summary of an article that, and they say that, I don't think that that one relates, but it's like, well, give it a chance, you know, maybe it'll have something that will actually make you think about your thesis in a different way. Um, but they do really kind of, and I think it's the fear of, of being off topic, because I know that students do worry that sometimes they, they may go on tangents. And I try to tell them that it's more about how you approach those connections rather than, you know, you don't just throw it in like, oh, I also know about this in the conclusion, you know, <laughs> it has to be intertwined. But, but I think that a lot of it is rooted in that fear. I, you know, it's funny because both something and it's not funny, actually, it's, it, it, it this is our podcast, something Bill said, and something you said, Carrie, made me think of um, creative writing, actually. Uh, so Carrie and I are both creative writers, but one of the pieces that I know she's heard, and I know she's um, given, and I, just as a creative writer, one thing that you're, that really, when you have a block in writing, you're supposed to go and read other things and go see art, like any art, right? Like feed your brain, um, all sorts of different art forms. So it does not, so even if you are a novelist, you still um, go to the art museum or, you know, you read poetry or, you know, like, so it's exposing your brain to these things. Um, and it's funny, it just sort of soaks in. Um, and I feel like because writing is part of the humanities, it's sort of like all these things are connected because we're talking about being a human being, right? Like, so it's like, it is absolutely that thing of like, it's not a literal, okay, so now I'm going to summarize Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but something in that in thinking about how humans have to prioritize um, and only have so much room for thinking about something and survival, you know, is the sort of basic, um, it, it, th that might help you think through why a college student might drop out if that's a research topic, right? Like, so um, th there's connections, but it's, I feel like it's almost like you have to be inspired. Like it's, it's more of like just letting ideas soak in. Yeah, that's a really great point. Um, the diversity of input, it just that the old aphorism, if you do what you've always done, you're going to get what you always got, right? Uh, and if you limit your thinking and your experience to just the writing classroom, it's really hard to sort of break out of those confines and employ creative thinking, right? So um, allow that multitude of input in those different experiences to help sort of color um, your thinking about things for sure. Um, I really like that idea of like going and seeing different art to sort of stimulate your brain. Um, Cause it's true. You do too much of the same thing and you definitely kind of get into that sort of mental rut and it's really hard to get out of. Um, Carrie also mentioned uh, students have a tendency to like laser focus on a particular assignment, even when it's not designed that way. So one thing that I, I encountered this semester was I created scaffolding assignments. So it's like, hey, this ancillary is going to inform your major essay, which is going to inform this other thing, right? And there's supposed to be a progression there. 
and the number of students who were absolutely baffled by that concept and would constantly like, so is this like the same as that essay we just turned in? I'm like, yes, but with critical differences, but yes, you know, sort of like ancillary to as a pre-writing exercise to sort of plan and think about your topic and then you're going to go do it, right? And they just, they kept tripping over that. Like, well, these, they're, they're two different papers. Can they, they can't be about the same thing. That's an, like, like they couldn't conceive of a world where you can have two papers that are, are sort of not only related, but sort of like, one builds upon the work of the one that came before it, right? Um, and so it's really fascinating to me um, that they're so sort of like locked in that like this prompt sort of creates a tabula rasa for them. Like here's a new prompt and like they just etch a sketch. Okay, great. So we're starting over from scratch. Like, no, 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 we're not starting over from scratch. You just spent eight weeks building to this moment. Let's keep the momentum going. They're like, nope, starting over from scratch. This is how we're going to do it. Okay. <laughs> so I guess it's a way of saying that there's also stuff happening within the writing classroom that should be informing what you are doing in the writing classroom. But uh, maybe that sort of subverts the point that I'm trying to make with the larger discussion, which is you have a whole world of experiences to build on, like use that, including your own personal life experience. And I think that's something else I've seen students sort of struggle with. And, and I, I have a, an episode planned to talk about the subjective eye, you know, injecting yourself into your academic writing and when and when is it not appropriate to do so. Um, but to touch on it real quick here, you can't separate yourself from your argument, especially in humanities. You you own that argument. That's your argument. Um, and so it's there's got to be some element of the writer present in it. So you can use the subjective eye. You can use personal anecdotes of your own experience. But I find myself sort of having to explain to students over and over and over again that, yes, you you can use I, and yes, you can talk about things that happened to you. There There is room for a narrative voice in this. Um, and in fact, it can be used to great effect, as we've seen in these other readings. Uh, and it's, it's sort of a, a, a brand new concept to them. Uh, and, and I'm not sure how to get around that other than to, to sort of like keep sort of pursuing the idea of you know, bring these outside experiences in? I will say that this is inspiring me to create prompts that specifically ask them to apply something from another classroom. <laughs> like, I feel like it would just allow them to even just, like giving them that permission is maybe what they're waiting for. Yeah, I've started adding it to my peer review sessions. Uh, one of the things that I ask them is, hey, this essay that you're giving feedback on, does it remind you of anything else that you have read or experienced? In other words, can you add to the context? What can you share with this writer that you may think is applicable that's not already included, right? So I'm trying to sort of get them to sort of expand their thinking about what's appropriate to include. Um, but I think without modeling that for them, I think they're going to continue to struggle with it. So that might be the next step, right, is, is to talk about how we can take something like Epstein's, you know, uh, cognitive schema, and then apply it to how we process new information. Um, and then how do we apply that to like a text? Hey, what happens when you read a text that completely contradicts something that you've already learned? Uh, well, that's where sort of Epstein comes into play, right? Now we have to sort of resolve that conflict for ourselves. Um, so it turns out that something that's rooted in the behavioral and social sciences can absolutely inform how we interpret literature. Uh, those things work together. So that might be the next step from like an instructor's perspective, right? Um, 
after giving them permission, maybe model the behavior a little bit. <laughs> Bill, you had a great uh, metaphor earlier, and I want to make sure that we come back to it, um, of what the GW classroom was. Do you remember it? A walled garden? Yeah, so I said, right? the yeah, a walled garden. I said, GEW, or the writing classroom, is not a walled garden. It's an open playground. Um, because anything and everything is allowed to come in and play. And, and, and this might be because students' experience with writing up until our classroom tends to be on-demanding, product-based writing, often timed, often, you know, sort of strictly prescribed, must do this, must do that, um, that they're in that habit, right? And then they come to my classroom, and I'm like trying to pull a Robin Williams, you know, captain my captain and stand on your desk to get a new perspective and tear out this page of the pedagogy book. And I'm trying to do all of this dramatic stuff, but in a much more low-key sort of pedagogical sense. Um, and And maybe they're just not ready to take that step or they're a little trepidatious because they still have these old rules that they've internalized um but but really i i see the writing classroom as an opportunity to play um to you have the freedom in sort of a judgment-free zone i don't want to say sort of it is a judgment-free zone these are your ideas share them without judgment we'll have a we'll discuss them we'll have a discourse we'll have a conversation but there won't be any judging there's no value judgment right other than whether or not you know how to use a comma um so I want them to think of it as a playground. Here's a place to sort of practice and exercise and be creative. Um, because that will improve your writing over time. Like it might be terrible at first because you're trying to do too many new things at once, but that's fine. That means you're trying. And eventually you're going to get better at it. So that by the time you're in your third or fourth, whatever undergrad class where you have to do a ton of writing, you're going to be somewhat proficient at it, right? And you're going to impress your instructors with your creative, you know, creative thinking and the way that you're bringing content in and outside of the classroom together to sort of inform it. Because um, that's really the key point of intertextuality is that everything informs the text. The world in which the text was written and the world in which the text is read informs the meaning of the text. Those things cannot be separated, right? So to try and, and treat the writing classroom as a walled garden where nothing can get in nothing can get out is sort of i don't know disingenuous it's like it doesn't really work that way now i'm thinking of a playground and i'm imagining kids you know jumping off of the swings and doing the monkey bars and it's like were you successful the first time no was it scary the first time yes but you still try it and you keep doing it and then you become really really good at it you know so i like that i like that kind of analogy that you set up that's really good yeah and i feel like sometimes our approach to writing pedagogy is a little too self-serious right I mean, we use big academic terms and we're like thesis statements and you know rhetoric and blah blah and, and and maybe we're just taking ourselves a little bit too seriously and maybe we need to chill out with that a little bit um and create a more relaxing environment and so that our students feel safe to to practice and play with these new ideas and I feel like this this episode is now veered off into what for instructors <laughs> perspective. <laughs> um, speaking of which, we're at 20 minutes. So uh, I feel like this is, might be a good spot for us to sort of wind down this particular episode. So uh, before we call it an episode, is there is there any go backs or anything that you would like to sort of leave for our students as a, as a key takeaway? One thing I did think about was that in this process of the playground metaphor and like 
being creative and things like that. That I think is connected to something we have talked about in the past, which is intellectual risk, right? Like this idea of pushing beyond sort of like this very formulaic sort of or confined way of thinking, but just really kind of expanding from there. And so that is always exciting as an instructor to see. Um, so I think that's connected there, right? Like this idea, like, so it's not literally creative, like go write a poem, but creative in the sense of thinking, um, which then is connected to intellectual risk. And with that idea of risk, I just want to remind students, if we're still talking to students, <laughs> um, that if you're ever unsure and you want to make a connection in your essay, just ask. Like, so, you know, a lot of instructors are really, really excited when you do want to make connections with your other classes, you know, and so all you have to do is just say, you know, is it okay if I reference this or is it okay if I incorporate this? Um, and just let us know that that's what you're thinking. And, you know, we'll tell you whether it's going to work or whether it might be difficult to do for that particular assignment. Um, but yeah, just, just ask. <laughs> We're not that scary, I promise. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, intellectual risk doesn't necessarily mean coming up with a brand new, never thought of before thought, but it can be bringing in a, a new perspective on an existing conversation. And guess what? All writers are capable of, of that because they all have a unique perspective and context, right? No one's lived the life that you have, so your perspective is unique. Um, so, and, of, and, and as Gary pointed out, your instructors are your safety net. If you're not 100% sure, if you don't quite have the confidence to take that, that intellectual leap, Run it past your instructor. It can be as simple as an email. Hey, I was thinking about doing this thing. And we'll be like super excited about it. And then be like, you should come to office hours. We can talk about it, which might be a little terrifying. But some of us are like that. Some of us have no chill when students get really excited about like taking intellectual risks. So yeah, that's all really good stuff. Uh, okay, so that's going to do it for this week's episode on uh, intertextuality and uh, the writing classroom. Uh, I, I hope as a student, uh, if you're listening, you found it helpful and if you're an instructor also listening i hope you got something out of, out of it as well because apparently we're talking to both audiences this week um, there's so much overlap though in those perspectives i feel like we probably couldn't have done this topic justice without sort of looking at it from both sides of the equation so um so that'll do it for this week's episode we hope that you'll come back for future episodes especially as we get into things like the subjective eye which is a common question that i get in the classroom uh, until next time get out there and write something